Hello, and thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Billy Newman Photo Podcast, recorded for the second week of August 2020. I'm out on a camping trip right now, and I'm in the back of my truck on the tailgate uh, at a campsite in the Fremont Winnema National Forest in South Central Oregon. Pretty sure that's about where it would be. Maybe it's still Central Oregon. I think it's um, it's still in the the mountain area before you drop down into the Great Basin, uh, near the location that I was for the last podcast when I was uh, talking about hanging out near that cabin, uh, near a meadow. And uh, since then, I've I've been driving uh, kind of around through these uh, Forest Service roads. Uh, checking out different campsites that are laid out in some areas, uh, a lot of area up here. I think um, I think when I was, I was looking at my watch and it says we're about forty nine hundred feet. I think I was about fifty two hundred feet near maybe the higher parts that I was at. But yeah, this is this is pretty high up here. Um, I think I saw a little bit of snow on the ground in a spot a while back when I was driving a little shady spot that hadn't get it, uh, been. Uh, been warmed up, which is, I don't know, it's weird to see in August. Not much snow out here, though, you know, by any means. So um, I think I was up here in the springtime in a, a, a different area, kind of further down and lower in elevation. And uh, I think it was early April. And I could get a ways up the mountain, but I think I got snowed out really quickly before before you really even break into, you know, the, the forest service roads that are up here. Even, even the more uh, well-traveled ones just weren't uh, maintained through the winter. Th- these are gravel roads out here. It's like a cinder cone that's crushed up and then spread across the roads. Or uh, I think uh, further to the west, they're still using gravel. I think I crossed over from Klamath County now into Lake County as uh, I've been making my way. I think uh, on the the map app that I've got, that Onyx off-road app that I've been using a lot out here. It's really been uh, uh, a good benefit to have uh, a road map of all of these uh, forest service roads and all the trails and uh, the terrain and stuff that I'm, I'm looking around. But, uh, but yeah, it really helps uh, kind of scan around and, and see what's around you and, and how to get through some places. But I mean, you, you'll have like just real tiny ATV trails. Troublingly though, I think I mentioned they're not really <laughs> totally differentiated with notes on uh, how bad each different road is. It's just a, a solid green line that says you can drive on it and it might be a, a well-graded, uh, gravel road that's wide like a like a highway or it might be a really small and brushy like overgrown power line road that kind of cuts along a property line that's what i was on yesterday for about a half hour and i was thinking man i probably would have taken that main way around if i had realized it would do this that's the thing that they get you too because it'll be a good road for about three miles you know or long enough that you're like ah, i don't really want to turn around and then it'll kind of gradually creep in and creep in more slowly. As I, I suppose less and less people have gone out as far as that to keep the road uh, well-traveled and maintained. But yeah, you get that, that the ruts of the tires, and then you get the center strip where you're getting like a bunch of seedlings of trees, these evergreen trees that are growing up about two feet, three feet or so, and they haven't really been topped off or knocked over by other uh, trucks going through. Maybe there's, I don't know, higher clearance vehicles that go through most of the time, but uh, even in this truck, it's uh, I'm still just kind of <laughs> scraping across the, the bottom of uh, these tiny little seedlings that are all over the place. Um, so, I don't know. It's okay. It's okay kind of floating around. But uh, I think I made it around like 70 miles or so from the last place that I was camping. And I'm now uh, up in the hills at an area out by uh, a big lake. Well, I think it's a reservoir. And I think this area, there's like kind of a natural depression. It's only, I don't know, 20, 25 feet 
lower, but I think what they've done is they've dammed up an area down from here and then have created a reservoir up here, I think, to supply water to the town and farmland that's down lower in elevation from here, um, which is kind of cool. It's interesting how it's, uh, it's sort of laid out like this up here, but I've been walking around up here for a little bit, and I think I'm the only person up here in this area. Um, I think there's a, a like a Forest Service campground that's a little ways over. It's pretty undeveloped, too. There's a, I think there's like, I don't, I don't think there's running water there. But I think there's a boat ramp or something. That's about it. And there's signs that give you information. Really out here, though, it's just it's just undeveloped camping. Um, but there's a picnic table at the spot I'm at. Pretty big rock pile fireplace with a fire grate over it. Uh, it looks like it was a hunting camp up here. I see uh, I see a couple uh, log poles that are stretched across a tree at probably 12 feet and 8 feet or so. Uh, I think that's what they use when, uh, like in the fall when they start doing their... Uh, when hunting season comes into effect, and I think this area gets a little more flooded out with uh, with people that have drawn tags to go mule deer hunting, um, and I think if they if they fill their tag, then they'll use these poles to I guess like prep the meat as it uh, as they get it back into camp. But uh, it's a cool little camp. It's a big area too. It's it's a, there's a swing too. There's like a rope swing with a wood board at the bottom that you sit on. You can swing around a a pine tree up here. A lot of pine trees. What is it? Lodgepole pine? Is that what it's called? I think that's what I saw on a sign that said this is an experimental forest, and they're you know they're testing it, seeing the regrowth of uh, a lodgepole pine. I think I see what they're talking about. They're just real straight, real thin, not a lot of curvatures and stuff. So I figure like what they do is, or like a lot of the the I don't know log houses or you know poles that we see are are from trees like this. Pretty exciting, wow. Uh, but uh, I've been walking around out here. Uh, still a good bit of trees in this area, but uh, a little bit further out from me, like I was saying, is that lake bed, but it's it's really dry right now. There's kind of like a creek flowing through part of the center of it. I'm sure you probably fill it up in the wintertime. I got to remember it's August too, and if I remember right, it wasn't a heavy rain year. Is that true? It seemed really rainy this winter, but if I remember them talking about the watershed, they were still talking about how it's sort of a drought year again. Take a sip of my cold coffee that I made up earlier. I got my AeroPress out with me, and I picked up a, another Jetboil. I've had one years ago. Jetboils are like one of the best uh, camping inventions that have been around for a while. If you don't have a good uh, portable stove and you're going out a lot, it's, it really makes things a lot easier and a lot more comfortable. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I've, I've gone uh, without making a fire anytime this year. And in the summertime out here, I keep seeing signs, as I've kind of learned in the past too, that uh, during fire season, there's there's really like no no good way uh, or at least no legal way to have an open fire pit, you know, like a rock pit with some logs in it, I think is uh, frowned upon up here. I think they've had a lot of forest fires and stuff up here. Um from from stuff like that but uh but yeah i've uh i've really kind of tried to avoid making campfires but for circumstances where i feel like i'd really need it in the wintertime, i have more fun with that sort of stuff but what i've noticed the most with uh with camping for multiple days and setting up campfires is that is that you really get sooty and you get dirty a lot faster you, you know your your clothes are kind of impregnated with the smell of uh like a wet smoke and stuff and uh and i don't i've I've not really appreciated the way I feel with that. So, uh, so yeah, I've kind of found that um, by doing just a couple lighter things and also by following the fire regulation rules, 
um, I can kind of uh, stay a little bit more comfortable while I'm out camping and stuff. So I'm not really in the backcountry. I'm not doing like a big um, a big expedition hike backpacking deep into the wilderness or anything. I've got my truck here. I've got a cooler. I've got a stove and all that stuff. But uh, but even when I'm out camping or backpacking and stuff, the jet boil is just like it's a pound or less or something. I don't know. It's great. It's just uh, an easy thing to carry and and uh, and travel around with. Um, so yeah, I lit it up this morning. Made my coffee. I got my AeroPress with me, which I think is probably my preferred camping coffee making method. If you haven't had an AeroPress, um, it's probably one of the the easier and well, I don't know. It's been it's been fine to make a single cup of coffee. Now, if you got like four people and you want to have coffee at the same time, might not be a great solution. It's pretty tough. You can kind of do one cup of coffee at a time. For me out here, it works great. You can throw in a scoop. It's kind of like plastic. I think it's made by AeroBee. You know, the, you know when you were in, in elementary school and you play frisbee, it was like an Aerobee frisbee. They make like frisbees. I think they're like a plastics company, and they try and find different uses for these plastics that they're creating. So I guess it's some high temperature plastic, and it's a coffee maker. Wow! So you get these little filters you throw them in. You can probably look it up online and figure out what an AeroPress is. But yeah, filled up my coffee and stuff, and uh, made my cup and my camping cup, and threw some half and half in there that I had in the cooler. And it's already it's already cold, so it's okay. But uh, other camping uh, tools that I found super useful was, uh, like I was saying, I don't really have a heater or I don't have a fireplace that I'm using or, you know, like a, a fire ring or I'm not bringing wood with me uh, through this time of year. But what I did pick up is, uh, is just like a portable propane heater. I've seen these used by a couple other people before, but it's sort of the size of a briefcase or so. And it's it takes one of those uh, those portable green propane pans that you can pick up for three or four bucks at a at a store, and you throw that in there, you light the pilot light, and then it's got this uh, like ceramic pad that I don't know throws off heat, uh, so it's great to have, and that's really like my fireplace replacement, as exciting as that sounds, but it's pretty safe, working really well, been really uh, stable and, and easy to use. But yeah, I got my tailgate down, and I've got that um, that heater going, and at night, it's a uh, it's about as good as a fire, you know, and you don't have any of the uh, the exhaust or the smoke and stuff coming off of it. So, uh, it's a nice, clean heat source and stuff, and it's fun too. If you want to move, you're like, oh, you know, I'm, I, I like my camp, but let's walk out over here. Like what I did last night is I uh, I shut the heater off while I was after I made dinner, and I was sitting at my truck, and then I walked out probably about a hundred yards into that open area as you're getting near the edge of the the lake bed, and then I sat down over there. And then kick the heater on again, boom, I'm set up and hanging out and warm. And uh, yeah, it, it gets cold up here at night. Really, I think the last last couple of days have been kind of chilly. Well, at least like uh, yesterday was pretty cold for, I don't know, a day in August. Uh, you'd, think it'd be, you'd think it'd be a hot one, but uh, but yeah, it was pretty pretty cool yesterday. I think it was probably like 73 degrees as a high. It was really comfortable, or I appreciated that as opposed to the heat. Like I was, I was knocked out by the heat. I think it was like around 100 uh, when I was out in the John Day area a few weeks back, and man, yeah, I was just wiped out by that. But uh, it, you know, it was, I don't know, it was 100 degrees. I'm driving around my truck with the windows down. I don't have AC in this thing, and I just uh, like <laughs> I have this my mask, right? It's a gator. You know, everybody's got a mask nowadays, so I've got one of these gators, and I would just constantly be like dunking that in ice water, and then like using that to cool off. But man. Uh, yeah, throwing that around your neck when it's covered in ice water is a great way to cool off. I think that was, you know, like some, I don't know, some uh, 
some like gimmicky product back in the early 2000s was something like that where you'd uh, you'd fill up like some something wrap it around your neck and it had ice cubes and water in it you go on a walk and stay cool in the summer another sip of cold coffee but yeah having this heater out here has been great uh going out uh to anywhere you want setting up a chair setting up a heater it's a pretty comfortable way to, to do some stuff and it worked Works well for doing some photo stuff too, because you can just kind of take off from where you're at, take your camera bag, take this little heater, and then uh, set up your tripod, sit down, set up your camera stuff, get your shots ready for like that evening time, and you can sit there pretty comfortably and just uh, you know stay warm and stay pretty comfortable. And um, uh, I wouldn't really take it too far out, you know, if I was uh, if I was traveling uh, pretty far. But if it's uh, if it's just kind of like a short short little jaunt down to a spot where I'm fishing or uh, where I'm uh, gonna be taking some photos it seems like it's been working pretty good for that sort of stuff but um but yeah kind of fun having a, a couple of things around i brought uh brought a few other things but i don't know i'll probably get into the other camp stuff later um it's been pretty smooth though camping out here and uh, traveling around i've been trying to do uh, some more rock hounding stuff uh, i was learning about uh, some of the privileges that you have on public lands to do rock hounding. It's cool. You can look this up yourselves too, but, um, but I think there's, uh, uh, like rock hounding. It's like, I don't know, the, the hobby of going around and collecting interesting rocks that you find, uh, you know, out while you're traveling around. And so, uh, legally you still get to pick those things up from public land areas, unless there's some specific restriction in that area. But, uh, but yeah, you can go around and do rock hounding all you want. So I think it's, it's most common stones that you can, you can just pick up, uh, with no, or, you know, it's just your right on public land to pick up, uh, the, the rocks that you come past. So it, it's been kind of cool going around and picking up, um, up here, I've been seeing a bunch of, um, obsidian in raw form and stuff, which is pretty cool. Uh, coming across some Jasper, some agate, some quartz, some petrified wood. That's been cool. I think last week I found a chunk of petrified wood when I was walking around and I thought, Hey, Nice, cool. I like this. And uh, there's some areas in Oregon where there's more of that than uh, than others. I think that it was part of part of the land development of of how I guess how much wood would have been trapped quickly under mud. Is that what it is? I don't know. There's some there's some like specific process of how petrified wood gets created from uh, really old trees, and you know like, uh, how that that uh, mineral change happens. I was learning about agate too. Agates from wood also. I didn't really understand this. I think agates from when, uh, when a piece of wood is buried in lava from a volcanic flow. Someone that knows about rocks really would probably be able to tell me more quickly. But uh, I think from something I was understanding recently, if you don't listen to it, check out the Meat Eater podcast. There's a bunch of really good stuff on there. Uh, I think it's hosted by Steve Ranella, and uh, they normally have like uh, some really good guests on to talk about. Uh, most of the time it's through the focus, through the lens of uh, like hunting trips and stuff. But really I've learned so much about uh, like outdoors, outdoor management, uh, and then, you know, including stuff like this, like rock hounding and geology and uh, all sorts of like uh, intersectional uh, ideas that are about the uh, outdoors and outdoorsmanship. So really appreciated uh, kind of some of the things I've learned from that. But one of the things I learned from that from an episode, I think maybe back in early May, was about uh, some rock hounding stuff that they were doing where they were going out looking for agate. And I think they were out in the Yellowstone Valley where they were looking for agate. One of the things that they explained is from, from one of the, the old uh, Yellowstone eruptions, 
uh, there was a flow of magma that covered a forest or, you know, a lot of trees. And then what would happen is that once that wood was encased in magma, the wood, the carbon wood would burn away and then it would leave a pocket where that wood had been. And then over a long amount of time, water, groundwater would seep into that pocket and then evaporate out. But as it would seep in, it would bring a certain set of minerals in it. And then as that mineral deposit would build, it would build an agate. And that's how you get these agate stones. I have this one at home that's, that's it looks like a, it looks like an onion almost. Or, or like, have you ever seen the cross section of a really big piece of hail? It's sort of like that where it's got all these different layers to it that have been created um, at different times, at different stages as it developed. But it was pretty cool. Uh, yeah. Uh, going around and trying to find some agate and uh, really cool stuff uh, or like really cool colors, really cool. Uh, like, sh- I don't know, just the, the, the clarity of some of them is, is awesome. It's really cool. Um, I think a little further out from here, you can start uh, finding opal, which is cool. I don't think I've really found a lot of opal. I've heard a lot about that uh, in the, I think, I think it's more common and more popular, like out in Nevada. I think like Northwestern Nevada is pretty common for uh, finding opal or, uh, deposits of opal rocks in that area and, and that's sort of similar to an agate at least in the look of, of that kind of clear uh crystally uh look of a rock which uh, is i don't know it's always fun to find um but i've been traveling around right up here and it's kind of high country up here but uh i've been traveling around and yeah trying to do some rock counting stuff trying to pick up some different things and you really can find a, a lot if you're keeping your eyes to the ground and uh picking up pieces and chips and chunks of, uh, of different rocks and stuff. And then you kind of collect through them and see what you got and what you want to keep and stuff. But as I was understanding the rules of rock counting, you can get into, I think it's 25 pounds of rock a day from BLM land across Oregon. And I believe it's 10 pounds of rock per day from national forest land. Really, that's a lot of rock. Also, in addition to that, you can pick up one 25 pound or more specific specimen from i think each location so like if you find like one big rock that's i don't know uh, 50 pounds or 30 pounds or something like that you can you can take that rock as well and not uh, be in violation of your rock hounding picking limits pretty pretty fun but uh it's cool yeah you can go around and pick up a lot of stuff and then i think it's with a maximum of 250 pounds collected from each uh each property management location uh through a year so you can pick up 250 pounds of rocks uh over the course of a year and i think um, yeah yeah you can't do that in a day i suppose some of the information sort of um sort of states both things so (laughs) i'm not really sure which one it is but uh, from what i have understood from from looking at the uh, national forest service website uh i think there's some information about rock hounding in oregon and uh and some of the areas that i was going to but yeah it was uh, 25 pounds a day on blm 10 pounds a day on national forest land and uh, and yeah that's cool that's a lot you can also go around and pick up firewood which i didn't really know about um you, you need like a, a a permit in some circumstances if you're trying to collect it commercially but if you're collecting it for private personal use, even just like home use, uh, there's a lot of wood that you can uh, pick up from managed public lands. 
some of them I think are there's like some specific areas where they want you to be doing that and some specific areas where they don't want you to be doing that. I think if it's um well I'm not sure, not all downed wood, but I think if if a if it's down and it's collectible, I think you can collect that uh in in a lot of areas. Um so yeah, I went through like in the springtime I went through an area of BLM land and I filled up my truck with uh with a bunch of uh, logs that have been taken down and I think stacked up in an area and yeah I just loaded up my truck and I have firewood for a while you can get like a, a I think you can get it's 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 a limit similar to the rock county stuff where you can get like a couple cords of wood a year and uh, collect that for personal home use I think if you're trying to sell firewood then you have to go through the BLM or the Forest Service to get a permit for the area where you're going to be doing wood cutting I've only just picked up downed wood that you would pick up kind of like for a campfire or something like, you know, if you're going around trying to pick up firewood for a camp, um, it's kind of a similar process to that. I'm not really like uh, cutting down fresh trees and aging them, but, uh, but there's, there's a qualification for that too. You can go around and uh, if it's a, a specifically designated area for that kind of a thing, uh, you can go around and, and actually, you know, use a tool and cut down a tree and process it and take it home and uh, cover up your stump or something like that, and, you know, naturalize the stump that you cut. But, uh, but yeah, there's, there's a, a lot of stuff you can do out on public land I wasn't really quite quite aware of in, in, uh, in every way. But, uh, but, yeah, it's been cool being out here, doing some rock counting stuff, trying to find uh, some some cool pieces. Really, a lot of obsidian is what I've been finding, which has been fun. Uh, a lot of, a lot of like, volcanic rock stuff out here. And some of them are cool, you know, but they're not, they're not um, like... Uh, I don't know, they're not like a gem or anything. It's just like, you know, a basalt stone from a volcano. Uh, but it's cool. Yeah, these uh, rock hunting stuff has been pretty good. Oh, what was the other stuff I wanted to talk about? So I think um, I saw, what have I been seeing? I saw a helicopter. There's a thunderstorm. That was like when I was last doing a podcast, right? So there was like a, a big time thunderstorm that was rolling through that last camp that I was at when I was podcasting and then, um, rained a bunch after that. That was nice. Stayed nice and dry and pretty warm in the truck and the truck canopy and stuff waited out the rain. Then it cleared off just like a couple hours later as that, that thunderstorm system moved past us. And then yeah, cleared off, got cold, got pretty cold. Uh, <laughs> I layered up and I walked out into that field now with you know a ton of wet grass and stuff. Uh, walked out there, brought the heater like I was talking about, and uh, posted up out in that meadow uh, to check out the stars and stuff from there. You can see Scorpio, uh, almost all of Scorpio. It's really cool when you got a strong southern view of the sky. And from this area in Oregon, you can't quite see the dip in the, the tail of Scorpio as it kind of scoops down and then comes back up with the stinger at the end. Um, you just barely, or uh, you, you can, oh, you can, you can definitely imagine how it kind of scoops around. But yeah, at, at where it is now, at this time in August, I think it's, uh, it's kind of tipping over and uh, gone, not visible in that spot. But uh, I think I can see, um, what was it, Jupiter? You see, just past Sagittarius as you look into the south. Then near that, just a little bit further over to the east, on that same. Uh, ecliptic line you see Saturn um, and I think they're both near the position where they'd be at opposition they're not as bright as they were a few years ago you notice uh, but they're still really bright really cool to see and then if you stay up late enough maybe around midnight or so uh, you'll see Mars rise 
over on the eastern horizon and it looks real real coppery red and really noticeable really cool but uh, i think it came up right about the same or I don't know, about an hour or so after the moon rose last night so tonight it'll probably rise uh along the same location as mars that's interesting yeah 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 i would uh, but it was cool checking out that stuff um and i was checking it out uh the other night after that thunderstorm out in that field so uh it was kind of fun kind of staying up and, and checking out some stuff but then i uh, i went to bed and then I got up the next morning, and this was what was really cool is I, I looked out the field. I hadn't really seen any animals out there. I'd heard a few a few birds, of, you know, like a raven and a couple other things. I think I heard a turkey gobble. I'm not sure, though. But I looked out, looked across the field, and I saw the two of the biggest birds I have ever seen. They are, they are the biggest birds I've ever seen. Um, I'm really not sure what it is. It looks like similar to a blue herring, so I figure it's some kind of herring. Maybe it's a crane, uh, but I would, I would guess if it was standing up, it would be almost four feet tall. It really looked like a small deer or a dog, like in, in mass and size, uh, as you you know, kind of like the feathery body of it. It wasn't puffed up in a big way, but there were two of them, and yeah, it looked like dinosaurs out there in this middle of this field. I've never seen a bird like that. It looked like um like a a blue herring that was about twice as I see a buck. It's at my 2 o'clock, walking to my 3 o'clock, 1 point, 2 point, 3 point, 4 point. Uh, I don't know. I think it's a 2 or 3 point buck. Ah, he doesn't see me. That's cool. Little buck cruising through. I think it's a mule deer out here. I saw like a group of mule deer down in the lake bed this morning. And when I started rustling around, they, they all kind of started to run off. Or one of them kind of got excited and then ran off. They're they probably like two or 300 yards from me. And uh, I pulled up the binoculars and I was scouting them in. And yeah, they were just booking it across this uh, open lake bed. And then they got tired and stopped and, I don't know, started eating grass like almost right away. So it's kind of funny how they, they kind of move around. But yeah, this guy's like... I don't know, like 200 feet, mocking around camp, cool dude, thanks for camping with me, um, what was I saying, two giant birds, I saw these two giant birds, thunderbirds, they were awesome, they were brown, kind of sandy tan colored, and they had um, like a beaked face, like a real pointy beaked face, really similar to a blue herring. It looked like it looked like an emu or an ostrich or something out in this field. It was giant, um, but it looked, I'd say, like I've seen a lot of blue herrings. They're way more slender than this. This really had that kind of big, kind of round, full-bodied thing, and then it had that craned neck, that kind of that S-curved craned neck, and it was uh, just kind of on the ground, walking with its buddy, and they were cruising around, poking at the ground, trying to I don't know, get grubs or whatever. But uh, but yeah, really cool to see them. And then, so I, I was watching them for a bit. I had them in the binoculars. I think I got a, a couple pictures, but like I was explaining in that last podcast, smartly, I have a wide angle lens with me, which is 17 to 40 millimeters. So I was way out, super wide. Um, so you just, I saw, you know, no telephoto on my back. So didn't get the wildlife shot that would have been cool, which is fine and I accept. But um, I did get a couple pictures of it that, probably poorly show uh two big things out in the distance and it, i mean it looks like it could be dogs could be deer 
or it could be birds. So <laughs> uh, it was pretty awesome to see. But as I walked out a little bit, I exposed myself into the sunlight. Uh, they got they got sight of me, and then they they both let out these for like maybe thirty seconds to a minute or so. They both just kind of stood around and, and made these sort of warning or territorial croaks. These like um, these like three beat croaks that would just echo across this whole. Uh, this whole valley that, or this whole meadow area that I was in, it, you know, it just carried on for acres. They were probably like an acre or two away from me at that time. And, uh, yeah, they just set, let out these loud croaks, kind of, I don't know, warning that they saw a, a standing dude predator out in the distance. But, yeah, then they kind of sauntered. They didn't take flight, but they just kind of sauntered back off up into the hill, uh, up into the tree line. And then I, I took back myself back up into the tree line by my truck made another cup of coffee that morning and then I saw him uh, kind of popping out again and poking around that uh, that meadow again but it was really cool giant birds I really would say they're like four feet tall body mass section it seemed like about two feet or so and you know like kind of on their leg maybe 24 inches off the ground yeah it just seemed like a really big bird if, if I was standing right next to it I'd be like whoa man this is this is a real critter so it was fun. I've never seen a bird like that out there before. I've heard about some of those or some birds like that before. I remember hearing like a, it's like a know, colloquial family story that I think uh, like a great uncle of mine had had, probably similar to this area too, which is interesting. I like that. But uh, he said that he had woken up one morning and looked out and saw these prehistoric looking thunderbirds, he called them. And <laughs> I think I had an experience like it too. I think it was fun. I'm sure it's totally a normal animal that's probably used to being around a lake or something. You know, that's sort of what it seemed like is, is just like a giant pelican or crane or something that you would see out by the ocean. But to see out here just walking around sagebrush in a field in a meadow at 7.30 in the morning, it's just like, whoa, wow, look at that. I thought I'd see a deer out there. But no, giant birds. So that was really cool. Never seen any, any birds like that before. That was fun. Uh, later in the day, saw a few hawks. Those were cool to see. They were watching me. Uh, I came out here to this uh, reservoir area, and there is an area where there's some water that's backed up, but I saw an osprey fly out over real high, probably 100 feet up above the water. Then it kind of it, it kind of did these tight circles, and then it did this big kind of quick drop with its wings still out, but, but kind of kind of braced. Drops down to about 30 feet, did another circle, and then tucked those wings in and dove straight, boom, down in the water, splash. Grabbed a fish, looked like a three-inch or four-inch sunfish, and that osprey grabbed it, clutched it, and bolted off to uh, its, uh, its tree branch perch to uh, have lunch. It was really cool. I love watching this osprey's fish. It's really interesting to see their, uh, their behaviors and stuff. You look at an osprey and, or like, you know, like a bird of prey like that, and how it operates in, in juxtaposition to other birds that uh, we see their behaviors of more commonly. And it's just really interesting to see like how they operate, how they work and um, sort of their, I don't know, their attitude of their behavior is just kind of interesting um, or it just seems like really present, you know, uh, like uh, I think they say that like uh, eagles are carrion eaters. Is that what it is? So they're, they're sort of like a vulture where they'll, they'll eat dead things. Um, I think hawks do that a bit too, but hawks, hawks will pounce. I think hawks like to pounce on mice and stuff, but you never see a hawk fish. Like I see osprey fishing all the time. It's just really cool to see that kind of connection or that kind of that kind of development between their ecosystem of an osprey 
knowing instinctually, knowing from its parents that, you know, or it's because they nest, they nest really like for a long time. So, you know, they have those big nests, they return to those nests, they set up those, those giant wide nests and those snags. And, uh, I don't know, they're just like really impressive life cycles that they've got. But it was cool checking out some ospreys, uh, always something I like. Then, additional to that, <laughs> I saw a helicopter cruise by. Like I was saying, there was a lightning storm uh, just the other day. So uh, I, I guess it must have started a uh, fire somewhere out here. But I saw this helicopter cruise over right near the reservoir that I'm at. I, I was a couple miles away from it at the time, but I saw a reservoir come, or <laughs> I saw a helicopter fly over the reservoir with a big bucket hanging from it. And I watched it do a, a cycle of like two drops or, it, you know, it wouldn't drop here, but it would scoop up water from this reservoir and then fly out to wherever, beyond my distance, wherever it needed to go to, to dump on this fire. Putting out fires with a helicopter. It was cool to see, but yeah, I was just like, wow, no way. The helicopter's cruising right here, picking up a scoop of water and then, bolting it over to wherever that fire needs to go out but it was a trip to see that it was cool i wonder what that'd be like to be you know the i don't know hey you got a firefighter but with a helicopter it'd be a trip to be like all right well let's ramp up the helicopter and it'd be weird to be a pilot to do that you know like i hear about being a helicopter pilot but i just think it'd be really strange to be hovering drop a big sack into the water and then boom scoop up hundreds of pounds gallons and gallons and gallons of water i mean water's heavy right you know so you have to like think about that but then scoop up all that change how you're flying to adjust to all the the new weight that you've added to the to the vehicle that you're flying in while you're flying it that's what i think would be strange you know you you load a vehicle or something and then you got that weight in it and then you fly that around but if you're riding a light vehicle like a light helicopter cruising down, picking up a big, uh, like a thousand pounds of water. <laughs> I'm sure it can't pick that up, but picking up all the water that it can and then lifting off and taking off again. That would just be so strange to fly around the mountains, picking up, picking up big buckets of water and then dropping it on fires. It just seems like a, a weird way to spend your days out here in the high desert, but I'm sure it'd be, uh, probably some cool stories. I don't know. Um, yeah, cool stuff to see that helicopter. Cool to see, uh, those Thunderbirds, cool to do some rock hounding. Cool to see some mule deer cruising around out here. Saw that buck. Oh, endless chipmunks. I see a chipmunk perched up getting some sun right now. Nice. But yeah, endless uh, endless chipmunks. Not many squirrels. No mosquitoes. Party on. That's been great. Man, I got beat up by mosquitoes up in the Cascades. I think last week. I'm still uh, kind of nursing my way back to health from that. That really hurt. It sucks. Those mountain mosquitoes. When they're, I don't know, by those bogs and marshes and lakes left over from the snow melt. And it, it seems like now in July and August is when they're really just getting going. Uh, but, man, they're brutal, hungry mosquitoes. And uh, I, I hit myself with DEET a couple times. It slowed them down. But, man, I could have used uh, 50 or so less mosquito bites that day. That's for sure. So, yeah, good times. A lot of fun. Uh <laughs> getting beat up by mosquitoes but uh but not on this trip so i'm having a good time uh i think it's a little colder this time too so it's probably uh part of what's dampened down the number of mosquitoes and really out here in this uh higher desert area i think you get a little lucky with uh, mosquitoes if you're not around like a pretty heavy body of water so in a lot of the areas i've been it's been pretty dry still or you know it's like pretty far away from a lake and um 
pretty far away from like uh, a bigger river or creek source that'd be a mosquito swamp. So thank goodness I've uh, stayed away from that for a little bit. But having a good time out here, I'm going to be driving around for a good part of the day, uh, checking out some more Forest Service roads. And uh, looking at this map, there's just so many areas you can go for. You could spend, you could probably go, I don't know, I could probably go down into Nevada. I, you know, I'd cross a couple highways or something, but you could probably drive all the way down into Nevada, mostly just taking these Forest Service roads. I think down into, this is like the, Fremont and the Winema, and then you can drop down into the I think Humboldt. I think it would be the Humboldt National Forest. But yeah, you can stay out on these backcountry roads and, and stay off the, the. I mean, you know, there's no towns or houses or anything out here, so I think just about everything is a backcountry road. But you can stay on those and get down into I don't know Nevada or uh, northeastern California and spend a bunch of time just kind of tooling around out in this high desert country. So. It's been pretty cool. I've uh, I've enjoyed checking it out out here, and I want to try and get back out here and do some more stuff. I think it's a it's a good good kind of location before it gets uh, too deep into the fall. And I think this is probably one of the the, the faster places to get snowed out in uh, in October or October November, depending on the the snow levels that year. I remember being out with my dad October seventeenth. I think we were camping uh, at an area in Eastern Oregon really still just kind of the lowland area of eastern Oregon where uh, you know you're not you're not climbing up real high to a, a mountaintop or anything like that kind of like where I am now um, but it, yeah it started snowing snowed through the valley snowed all across the highway 140 as we were trying trying to drive back to Bly and uh, you know, a couple inches or something like that but still you know for for like early October there's still hunters out there and campers and stuff and uh, yeah I just get hit with the, the first couple couple inches of snow it's good times but uh, I, I'm not sure it makes it cool for for people that are more used to the snow and stuff. I'm sure it's a, kind of an easy transition when you're doing some hunting stuff to get out and deal with. But, man, I do not like early season wet snow. If it's sticking, I can kind of deal with that. But, man, that, you know, just like after a half hour, it's just standing water is what it feels like. It's just that slushy stuff. You can't you, even walking through it. It'll splash now. <laughs> it's rough. Um, so I'm glad to uh, kind of avoid that most of the time. But uh, up here in the mountains, it's cool. Hey, the helicopter's back, I think. You might be able to hear that. I'll probably noise gate that sound out. But yeah, I hear that chopper flying over, and it, it looks like it's probably going to head over to that reservoir again. Still got to fight those fires. Shoot. But I'm going to wrap it up here, I suppose, and uh, I'll probably come back with another podcast in the next uh, couple days to talk about more of the uh, summer camping trips I've been out on. And I think I'm going to try and get home, process some photos, process some stuff together, and then uh, do a little retrospective about some of the last couple camping trips that uh, that I would not yet talked about on the podcast. So thanks for tuning in and listen to me uh, jabber from my tailgate high atop the Fremont Winneman National Forest in the mountains by a lakeside. Camping out. Thanks a lot for listening to this episode of the Billy Newman Photo Podcast. You can find more information about me at billynewmanphoto.com. Shoot me a message or uh, feel free to support the podcast too. Uh, you can go to billynewmanphoto.com forward slash support or I think patreon.com forward slash billynewmanphoto if you'd like to help out and send me some bucks to support the uh, travel and photo stuff that I'm up to and what I'm able to put together. So it always helps and I always appreciate it. But thank you guys very much for uh, bothering to listen and to check out this episode of the Billy Newman Photo Podcast. Talk to you next time.